Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. It's been about 12 years since Claire McCaskill first ran for the U.S. Senate, and while Missouri has arguably changed politically since then, one thing remains constant. The race for the U.S. Senate will be one of the most competitive and expensive races in the entire country. The Democratic official joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to break down her campaign and the issues she's presenting to voters. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our very special guest today, she is the senior U.S. Senator for the state of Missouri and a baking aficionado as well. That's true. Claire McCaskill. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. First time in five years. Where does the time go? Has it been five years? It's been five years. And uh, you're running for your third term as senator. I'm interested to hear, because Joe and I have covered both of your other Senate campaigns, how Mm -hmm. is this one different than the last two? Uh, There is um, certainly more volunteers, and I certainly don't want to start this program or end this program without saying thank you to all of them and asking everyone to volunteer. This is feels like much more of a grassroots campaign than I have ever been involved in before. Um, I can give you data points, uh, but one data point I would give you is at this point in 2012, we had like 1,200 volunteers that had worked shifts. We are over 7,000 people who have worked volunteer shifts. Uh, That's a remarkable difference. It feels like people are tired of cussing the TV or the radio station, (laughs) whichever it might be, and that they want to do something. And so it feels much more um, granular, much more from the bottom up than pre. And, and by the way, that our average donation is under seventy bucks. Um, that's remarkable considering how much money we've raised. I mean, hundreds, you know, way more donors than we've ever even thought of having, because so many people are sending in small amounts of money. So it is um, much more grassroots oriented than either one of my previous Senate campaigns. Well, before we go any further, uh, can you give us, mainly our listeners, because we know it, like a 90-second summary of your life, especially your political life, so our listeners have a sense of where you're coming from and uh, sort of how you got where you are now? Sure. Um, My parents made me say trick-or-treat and vote for JFK, JFK when I was seven years old. Um, My parents were not politically powerful, but they were interested. And I was exposed to, I think, a very healthy upbringing as it relates to public policy. Where were you living at the time? Well, we, my dad's family had the feed mill in Houston, but then it fi- financially was so difficult to support a family. 
um, off of that feed mill. They moved to Lebanon, Missouri, which was my mother's hometown when I was very young. And then we were in Lebanon until I was four years old, excuse me, fourth grade. Then we moved to Columbia, and I finished, um, you know, elementary, junior high, high school, then undergrad and law school at Mizzou. And then I went to Kansas City, where I was an assistant prosecutor for a number of years in the courtroom. That's where I actually met you then. Yeah. Um, spent. Um, I was at one point in time, I was the only woman in the prosecutor's office in Jackson County handling major felonies, did a lot of jury trials as a very young lawyer. Um, then I ran for state legislature uh, in 1982, uh, knocked on um, 11,000 and some odd doors. I wasn't part of the political machine. I was not tapped on the shoulder and told it's your turn. I just went out there and knocked on doors and won, then came back and um, ran for Jackson County prosecutor in 1992, was the boss there, elected, reelected in, in 96, and then ran for state auditor in 98 at the urging of Governor Mel Carnahan, uh, then served two terms as state auditor in Jefferson City as a single mom with three kids, and then um, eventually ran for governor in 2004. I was defeated by Matt Blunt. Uh, in the general election after winning a very tough primary against the sitting governor of my own party, and then went on uh, to defeat Jim Talent in 2006. Now, are there any particular lessons you took from that loss in 2004 that you are now using? I mean, because you've run two times since then and won, but are there things that you're like, you know, yeah, this reminds me of back then? Well, I, I think um, mistakes that were being made um, in the 90s and in the early 2000s by Democrats in this state was some kind of uh, – I remember the days where they said, well, if you win St. Louis County, it's over um, for a Democrat, um, that when St. Louis County was in contention as it related to whether a Democrat could win it or not. There was not um, – frankly, I was not taught, and nor did I see role modeling – of really emphasizing campaigning everywhere in the state. And my mother is probably more responsible for, um, you know, kind of knocking sense into me after 2004 and saying, you know, you got to, you cannot expect to work for the people of this state if you're not in every corner of the state. So quit thinking that you can run up the margins in St. Louis and Kansas City and ignore the rest of the state. So not only have I campaigned that way since 2006, I've also served that way. I mean, I did way more town halls in places I'm not very popular than I did in the blue areas of our state. Um, I thought it was more important for me to get out there, especially when Donald Trump won our state by as large a margin as he did. I needed to get out there and listen. I needed to figure out what was going on, where he, um, you know, where the Democratic candidate for president got less than 20 percent of the vote. I need to be listening and learning what was on folks' mind about that. So... Um, I did. I did learn um, that. And by the way, I enjoy it. Um, it's one of the blessings of the state, is that it's so diverse in terms of its political ideology, in terms of its demographics, in terms of its topography, in terms of you know, it's 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 an, an amazing state to represent because it is. Um, I, I I I laugh at my colleagues in the Senate who are busy trying to figure out what shade of blue they're going to be. And I'm like, no, no, um, I, I'm here in the middle trying to pull people in from the two edges because that's the kind of state I represent. But, and that's who I am. But you have taken some hits over the last year, I know, from some of the urban Democrats about complaints 
about whether or not you've been campaigning enough in the urban areas. And I know you're doing an event later today in Ferguson. Uh, I mean, is there any thoughts about the Balancing Act? I mean, having to also, uh, so that urban Democrats, uh, Democrats of color, feel like you're representing them too? When you're in a state where um, every single Democrat on the statewide ticket was defeated in 2016, when you're in a state that uh, voted for the Republican candidate for president by almost 20 points, you've got to do everything right as a Democrat. Um, You can't just worry about motivating your base, although you've got to worry about that. You can't just worry about making sure you're accessible and available and listening to people who disagree with you, although you've got to do that. You can't just worry about talking to independent voters who voted for Jason Kander and Donald Trump or voted for Mitt Romney and Claire McCaskill, but you also have to do that. So in order for me to win this campaign, honestly, I mean, this is as candid as I can possibly be. I got to do all of it perfectly. I got to do everything. I can't make mistakes. I got to do it all perfectly. I got to be everywhere. I've got to be working harder than I've ever worked in my life because that's the only way this is going to work. This is going to be a very close election. Yeah. So we, since we have a limited amount of time with you, I do want to go over some of the big issues. Sure. One of the things that you are emphasizing is health care, and that's going to be one of the reasons you're in Ferguson today. I've noticed a lot of other Democrats in tough races have been focusing in, on health care and the pre-existing condition issue. Why do you think it's so important to, to bring that to the to forefront for voters? Well, I think it's really important for voters to understand what Josh Hawley is doing. Josh Hawley made a decision as the elected attorney general of his state to use Missouri taxpayer money to sue to do away with every consumer protection in the law for people who have health insurance, not just pre-existing conditions, but the things we put in there that said you got to spend 80 cents of every dollar you get on health care rather than CEO salaries and more claims adjusters to deny claims. Things like you can't charge somebody more just because they're a woman. Yes, I know women have babies, but men have something to do with it. It's not fair that women should have to pay a lot more for health insurance than men. That provision goes away. He is, he's get, trying to get rid of all the subsidies for people who get insurance on the exchanges. He did not decide, I'm going to go after the subsidies or I'm going to go after this consumer protection that I think is um, wrong. He's going after all of it. And that was a decision he made. And I don't think most Missourians want those protections to go away. And so if he doesn't, want those protections to go away, he needs to withdraw from the lawsuit. Now, he's been arguing that, well, the Senate in general, but Congress in particular, could be um, passing stuff to uh, protect pre-existing conditions or doing some of these other things that are at threat in the lawsuit. Uh, I know there's some stories out today uh, kind of raising questions about that. Do you think that Congress would do that? Would the Senate vote on this? Um, Well, why aren't they voting on it now? They're in charge. We've got bipartisan bills that will help the exchanges be more affordable for people who don't qualify for subsidies and don't get insurance at work. We have bills right now that would bring down health care costs. Mitch McConnell, I mean, this is the guy who recruited him. His party is in charge. They're doing nothing to isolate and enshrine in the law these consumer protections. In fact, they did just the opposite. The Republicans decided not to do away with many of these protections when they voted on their plan to replace Obamacare. It wasn't the Democrats that defeated that plan. It was Republicans. 
I mean, it was they didn't get enough Republican votes to get it done. They had no intention of getting Democratic votes. That's because they crafted a bill, frankly, for Missouri. It would have had rural residents paying multiples of what they pay now compared to urban residents of our state. So it is so disingenuous for him to say, oh, well, they'll just fix it if we wipe it all out. He's got to know better. He's got to know if that was an easy thing to do, his party would be doing it now. Let me ask you this question. Do you think it would be more efficient if a state like Missouri passed its own law mandating that insurance policies had to have pre-existing conditions as opposed to the federal government doing a federal law? I'd be interested in your take on that because I'm not sure Holly is talking about that explicitly, but it seems like that may be a more efficient way of making sure insurance companies have that than the federal government on its face. Well, if you start doing individual consumer protections in 50 different states, that ultimately is going to drive up the cost of health insurance because you're going to have insurance companies having to figure out what to charge differently in every single state in the union and based on the, the, the peculiarities of that individual state. So I do think there's some broad protections that w- need to be in the law no matter where you are. And frankly, you seek, you know, s- different parts of our economy coming to Washington for some kind of guidance on a, they want a one-size-fits-all because it's more efficient for them, you know, whether it's environmental regulations or whether it's something like consumer protections. Many times um, it's in the best interest of everyone to make sure that that is, in fact, the law of the land as opposed to having 50 different scenarios for insurance companies to have to figure out Uh, of different regulations and different rules in every state. Why do you think the Republicans have continued to go out? And Donald Trump has made this one of his uh, key things, to get rid of everything in the Affordable Care Act. Why do you think that is? I think some of it is just they've been doing this for so long. One of the most disappointing things to me about the Affordable Care Act was you can't do anything that big and, and do it perfectly. So almost within a year... There were a list of things we needed to adjust and change, Uh, things that we realized weren't working as well as we'd hoped. And there was a real effort. I was part of an effort to try to get Republicans, help us fix it, you know, help us make changes to make it better. But they saw it as such a political, powerfully political weapon. They used it like a two by four. And so they campaigned on repeal and replace, repeal and replace. I kept saying during all that time, where is the replace? Somebody show me what it is. They never produced a piece of legislation. And then when the dog caught the car and they were in charge, all of a sudden they had to come up with something that was workable that would keep some of these protections in place for consumers but also basically dismantle the whole program. They were incapable of doing that. Now we need to quit playing politics with everybody's health care. We need to come together in the middle and find bipartisan solutions to bring down health care costs, copays, deductibles, pharmaceutical costs. And I'm in the middle almost always working on some of these solutions for some of these really complicated and hard public policy problems. Hopefully, after this election, uh, we will be in a place that we can pull together this bipartisan coalition to make the changes that will, in fact, make the ACA better. By the time this airs, it'll be a day before your meeting with Judge Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. You talked with Joe earlier about what you're, you're, you're going to be asking for, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you, you're going to be looking for in that meeting. Well, um, there's a variety of things I'm going to ask about. I'm going to focus um, a lot of my questioning about dark money in politics. 
Um, it was a, an extraordinarily activist decision when the Supreme Court decided that corporations were people and that there was an entitlement in our somehow in our law that they can give unlimited anonymous contributions to political campaigns. Unlimited anonymous. Now, you're going to see in Missouri, by the time this election is over, right now, I think 80 to 90 percent of the money that's been spent on behalf of Josh Hawley has come from third-party groups. Um, you don't hear, I'm Josh Hawley and I approve of this ad very often. If you hear, I'm Josh Hawley and I approve of this ad, or I'm Claire McCaskill and I approve of this ad, you can go online and see who all of our donors are. But the vast majority of the money that is being spent on behalf of Josh Hawley is, in fact, this anonymous money. Now, his campaign, though, has been saying, well, if you look at the money that uh, the Senate Majority PAC mm -hmm. is spending on your Just behalf, as bad. Just as bad. Okay. I mean— I feel just as strongly about that. I've said over and over again publicly, this door swings both ways. I recommend to everyone, ignore every ad that you can't figure out who paid for it. And the Supreme Court did that. And so um, I want to look at his decisions. I'm reading—I feel like I'm in law school again. I'm reading so many opinions these days. I'm going to ask him questions about that, why, why about the activist that? view he had and others on the court have had about corporations. Our founding fathers were no fans of corporations. They didn't even trust corporations. So this is an activist court that's doing this to our country. Why do you think that there are democratic groups that are engaging in unidentified donor practices when people like you are so out front saying that this is wrong? I mean, I understand the argument that you you wouldn't unilaterally disarm by not using PACs, but I don't quite understand why there's secret money in the democratic wing as well as the Republican wing. I mean, you could still have that money, but just say where it's coming from. Why, why do you think that's happening? It's a good question. Um, I certainly call on um, all the organizations that are funding these ads to list their donors. I like my side of that. I think if we li they listed the donors that are paying for Josh Hawley's ads, Missouri would appreciate the enemies I've made. I think they'd like the fact that I'd made this list of enemies. So I certainly call on all of the dark money groups to voluntarily disclose their donors. Uh, I think that would be a terrific step forward. I don't think they're going to do that, though. And w the argument they make is we can't unilaterally do what the other side won't do. That's the argument they make. I don't know how valid that argument is, but the best way to do this is to pass the Disclose Act. The Disclose Act is one I co-sponsor. It's one the Republicans have repeatedly voted against. Keep in mind, Josh Hawley likes the dark money. He's endorsed by Citizens United. They think he's the right guy. He will vote to protect these anonymous donors because we've given the Republicans an opportunity to require disclosure, and they have turned it down every single time. Now, a number of the ads, the most recent ads from groups that either get money from dark money or dark money groups themselves, have been attacking uh, your husband's businesses, um, your family, your your plane. Now, some of this is familiar to Jason and I because we've been covering stuff that you've been involved with for almost 15 years. But uh, do you feel that these attacks are being effective at all? I mean, I'm wondering if you aren't going to have to do some sort of ad like you did in 2006, where you actually spoken to the camera about them. I just wondered, I mean, we may. if you want to talk about that. Yeah, we may, before it's all over. Um, the ads are incredibly false. 
um, you know, what they're trying to do. I mean, first of all, everybody needs to know my husband's first job out of school was in a steel mill. He is a self-made guy. He had been wildly successful before I ever met him. Had a great deal of wealth when we met. Um, in fact, he sold most of his projects before we were ever married. I mean, the majority of his low-income housing developments that he did. And by the way, he did a lot of rural low-income housing all over the country, beginning in the 70s in this country. And the notion they're trying to make the fact that he chose to work in that field, evil or nefarious, is so hurtful to him um, and, frankly, to me. Um, And what's even worse is them trying to distort in such a way they know they're distorting. They're taking the amount of money that went to the people who get low-income housing and somehow trying to give the impression that it went to my husband. So all these projects that he's a minority investor on, very tiny percentage, the money that comes from the federal government goes to the residents of those units. It doesn't go to a minority investor who has no control over the projects. But they're taking that big number and somehow making it look like that I had something to do with that going into his pocket. All of this is incredibly controlled by, by existing statutes as to what even return on investment people can get on low-income housing. So it is so hard for my family and so unfair. And I may have to go into the camera before it's all over. I'm hopeful that Missourians know me well enough to know that any ad who intimate, that intimates that somehow, you know, I've enriched my family by my service is, 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 is frankly, I think, a stretch for most Missourians who have, um, I mean, a lot of Missourians have voted for me a number of times. So we need to do something about this. And they know the ad is false. They know it's unfair. And they're running it anyway. And that's disgusting. In the last couple of minutes that we have you, I would be remiss not to ask you about tariffs because I think that's a big issue for for agriculture and whatnot. Um, you know, I was at the, the event in Granite City where a lot of steel workers there were very happy with what the president has done. I'm sure that there are some manufacturing uh, centers in Missouri who support it because it's going to maybe increase demand for manufactured products. You have been on record against them. I'd like you to kind of address the, the kind of tension we're seeing between some of the manufacturers and in some of the agriculture groups and and why you think this entire situation may not be the best idea. Well, if you look through history, um, especially Smoot-Hawley and what happened, there is a downstream effect of tariffs on American jobs. And I have spent last week going around to a number of manufacturing facilities in Missouri that are on the brink of shutting down because of these tariffs. Not just Mid-Continent Nail and Poplar Bluff, but Deutsch precision uh, manufacturing out in St. Louis County, by the way, which was created to create an American part, a bearing for the automobile industry. And now what's going to happen, because they can't get the steel and compete with their customer, uh, with other competitors, they would go out of business and their customer would start buying this part made in a foreign country. Same thing that's happening to Midcontinent Nail. Same thing that's happening to a company down in Joplin we visited. Same thing that's happening to a company up in Maryville. We're going to have a, a roundtable uh, hearing, a, a field hearing on this in, in Missouri uh, later in August. I, I have been blown away at how many companies are contacting my office saying, you don't understand, we're going to go out of business. So the question is, 
you create some steel and aluminum jobs, but how many jobs do you lose? How many farms uh, are on the brink? I mean, we all remember the embargo. It started out as a way to get fairness, and it ended up wiping out half the family farms in Missouri. So we've got to be careful about the way tariffs are used and how that's escalated. I actually believe that there are other ways to get at Chinese cheaters that are way more effective than doing what they're doing now, which has permanent consequences for Missouri agriculture. Because that market in China for soybeans, you don't recover that with the flip of a light switch. Now, uh, Alina, a lot of farmers, especially those who grow soybeans and some other crops, are concerned about the tariffs. But um, on the other hand, you've got the Farm Bureau, they endorsed Holly. So, I mean, how do you uh, talk to farmers about this? Are a lot of farmers okay with the tariffs enough that they're going with Republicans anyway? Just sort of what's the I think uh, there's I think there's a concern, but I think that many of them want to believe that this is just short and temporary. Um, and, and, you know, the Farm Bureau, go ahead and give me a break. You know, I mean, the Farm Bureau... Todd Aiken never voted for a farm bill, said all the farm programs were socialism. I'd been for every farm bill. They still endorsed Todd Aiken. So, I mean, this is not a, a an organization that is, um, I mean, there have been a few outliers where they've embraced a Democrat, but this is by and large a, a very partisan organization. It's been about four years since Michael Brown. I want you to just lay out as briefly as you can or as verbosely as you can. What have you done in the Senate to make sure that African-Americans and police have a better relationship? Because I know that a lot of that is done on a, a local issue, but I do think there's things that can be done on the federal issue. I think um, more support for uh, alternatives to imprisonment. Um, I'm somebody who started one of the first drug courts in the country and frankly, the first one for sure in Missouri and was really instrumental in spreading the drug court movement all over this country and abroad. Um, you know, putting more money into drug courts, which we have done, putting more money in uh, to community policing, which I have advocated for, which is really important. You re- rebuild trust in neighborhoods at the street level. And the way you do that is you have police officers who are assigned to neighborhoods, not just to a car that responds to 911. And they b- build up relationships. I've experienced with this because we work with community policing and I actually installed community prosecutors when I was the prosecutor in Jackson County, so that the neighborhood knew who the prosecutor was that was going to be working with them if they were victimized by crime. So rebuilding that trust at the street level is very important, and I certainly have advocated for that. Also worked on criminal justice reform legislation, and there's some bipartisan support for that. The Koch brothers are big on criminal justice reform. Um, looking at, at, at where marijuana is scheduled in the federal laws, looking at minimum mandatories, looking at how much we're using diversionary and alternative programs in the federal system. Uh, John Cornyn is involved in it, the, the Republican senator from Texas, uh, Cory Booker and, and Dick Durbin, a lot, a lot of bipartisan work on criminal justice reform. We have not gotten floor time for that, but the legislation is something that I am optimistic about because it's one of those areas where we actually do have both Republicans and Democrats in the room working on it. Now, one of the political questions I wanted to make sure I got in was the state Democratic Party is sort of a week on the bench. And uh, what, regardless of what happens to you in 2018, this year, there's going to be, what, what are they going to do about the statewide ticket in 2020? I know your original dream, statewide dream, had been to run for governor. Um, have you pretty much given up on that? Have you decided you're going to continue your focus in Washington? Or might people be looking at whether or not you might run for, let's say, governor in 2020? Or just sort of, 
because you are the de facto head of the Missouri Democratic Party right now because we don't have a governor and there's virtually no Democrats in Jeff City. So just sort of how how do you see this playing out? Well, I think this election will be a really important one. We have um, I worked really hard along with the the chairman of the Democratic Party on candidate recruitment for legislative seats this year. Um, I think we've been smart and strategic about recruiting candidates. We've already had successes in two races where we flipped a state rep seat in Jeffco and we flipped a state senate seat over in Clay County. Um, I think we're building the bench this time. I think there are going to be some real stars. I mean, the woman who won the Senate seat over in Kansas City. Lauren Arthur, by the way. Very, very, very smart, very uh, good at, at, she works hard. Um, So, you know, we've got people like Jean Peters Baker, who's a highly respected prosecutor in Kansas City. We've got Nicole Galloway, who's doing an amazing job as state auditor. So I'm not as worried about the bench as others are. Sometimes the best bench is somebody who is, 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 is not run before. Um, that's okay, too. So I do think that, um, and I'm not, I'm not interested in running for governor. So, so you're swearing that off on this show I forever. I am swearing off governor on this show forever. All right. If you change your mind, we're going to play this clip forever. <laughs> well, so. by the way, that would be your right to cha- play this clip forever. But um, Yeah, because we, we played the Greitens clip on Dark Money forever. <laughs> so Yeah. Isn't that the truth? The, 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 this show is kind of a, a, a trap for politicians. But Okay. Trap. Now, one thing about, because in St. Louis County, the Democrats are still kind of roiling or having all these internal arguments. And I know you don't necessarily focus on all that, but you would be kind of focused on what impact this might have in November, because St. Louis County has become now Democratic territory. The issue is you need a huge margin there. Um, I'm just interested if you've been paying much attention to that or you're trying to stay out of all that? Well, I don't get involved in primary races. I just don't think it's appropriate for me to do that. I never have. Um, I've certainly tried to touch base with everyone who won their primaries. And I certainly um, am looking forward to working with everybody. I've also touched base with a lot of people who lost their primaries. So I think everybody understands we got to come together on this one. Uh, this isn't an election in Missouri where we can let what's going on in terms of a disagreement on the county council or with the county executive or over in Jackson County where we have the same situation where there's a Jackson County executive who is kind of battled with the Jackson County legislature. Um, you know, we have all these people running for mayor in Kansas City to replace a term-limited mayor. So this stuff, it's just natural this happens um, within your party, especially in areas that d- Democrats dominate. But I don't I don't sense any problem with everybody knitting together on this one. And frankly, it probably will help that I think Donald Trump will be in here every 10 minutes campaigning for someone who has not allowed one inch of daylight between him and the president. I mean, clearly, Josh Hawley is one of President Donald Trump's number one priorities in the fall. And the more Donald Trump comes in here, I think the more it will remind people that we need to elect somebody who's willing to be a check and not just a yes man. Well, we want to thank you so much for your time this morning. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. You can follow the senator on Twitter at... At Claire CMC. 
Or just go to ClaireMcCaskill.com and you can do a lot more than just follow me on Twitter. You can volunteer. You can volunteer. And you can volunteer. It's fun. Come knock on a door with us. It is very fun. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. 